You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 will be our text this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out today. That's our gift to you. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, no worries. We're going to put all the verses that we'll be looking at on the screen so you can track right along with us. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Uh, This passage that we're going to read is one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. It's so incredibly helpful for us as we seek to share the gospel today. So listen now to the beginning of the story, and we'll come back to the full story later. Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This year is just, uh, it's just flying by, isn't it? I mean, we're just like speeding through 2022, it seems to me. January is in the rearview mirror. Before we know it, like just ahead of us, we got Valentine's Day coming up. Let the gentleman be reminded, Valentine's Day. And then before we know it, we're going to be celebrating St. Patty's Day, right? And everybody celebrates St. Patrick's Day. Or at least acknowledges it. I guess there are Irish people everywhere, or at least people who want to be Irish. About a decade ago, a man named George Hunter wrote a very influential book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. How we can reach the West again. And he opens the book with the story of St. Patrick. Now maybe you've always thought that St. Patty's Day is about nothing but green beer. But there's much more to the story to the adventure than you might know. Let me tell you a little bit about St. Patrick. The adventure begins with pirates and not the Johnny Depp kind. Around the year 400 AD, Patrick was growing up in what is now North, Northeast England. His people were Britons. His family was Christian. His grandfather was a priest. Patrick himself was baptized and had acquired some Christian education, but he was a very nominal Christian at the time. During his teenage years, Patrick's life took a sudden and tragic turn. When he was 16 years old, a band of Celtic pirates from Ireland invaded his homeland. They kidnapped Patrick and many other young men, sailed back to Ireland, and sold them into slavery. 
He spent the next six years of his life as a herdsman in Ireland. Now, for the dog lovers among us, and I know there are many of you in Florida, Patrick's constant companion during these years likely would have been either an industrious border collie or maybe a Welsh corgi. In the course of these six years of enslavement, Patrick experienced three profound changes in his life. First, in the wilderness, among the cattle and the other creatures, Patrick experienced what theologians call natural revelation. He sensed in the ever-present winds, in the passing of the seasons, in the countless nights under the stars, the presence of a Creator God. He identified this presence with the triune God of the Bible that he had learned about in his youth. Patrick experienced a theological awakening. He became a devout Christian. Now, a second profound change occurred in Patrick during the years of his enslavement. This one had to do not with the Creator God, but with his captors. As he spent time with his captors, Patrick came to understand the Irish Celtic people, their language, and their culture. In fact, he came to understand them with a sort of intuitive insight that is possible only from one who is on the inside. And third, in time, Patrick came to love his captors and to hope for their reconciliation with God. One night, after six years of captivity, this is where the story really gets good, a voice spoke to Patrick in a dream, announcing that he would soon escape. The voice instructed him to awaken early, to walk to a seacoast, where there he would find his ship ready for him. So Patrick walked. He walked to the coast, and he saw the promised ship. He found a way on board. For the first time in a long, long time, young Patrick was free. Fast forward quite a bit. Having returned to his people in England, Patrick trained for the priesthood. His training immersed him in the Christian scriptures and grounded him in theology. And then one night, Patrick experienced another dream. One that was to change his life again. In this dream, an angel approached him with letters from his former captors in Ireland. In the letters, the captors cried out as with one voice, Patrick, come and walk among us. Patrick knew what this meant. God was calling him to carry the gospel to the Celtic peoples of Ireland, to the very ones who many years earlier had kidnapped him. Patrick answered that call. He was ordained a bishop and appointed to Ireland as history's first missionary bishop. He arrived in Ireland with a team of co-laborers in the year 432 A.D. Now, you must understand, this was an unprecedented undertaking. The Irish Celtic people were considered barbarians. They were illiterate, uncivilized, the Irish were known to be emotional people, volatile personalities. They were out of control. For example, in warfare, 
the Celts stripped before battle and rushed their enemy buck naked. These people were uncontrollable, unchangeable, unreachable. Patrick's mission to Ireland was widely assumed to be impossible. Nevertheless, he went and he walked among them. For nearly 30 years, Patrick ministered to the barbarian Irish Celts. And the God who called Patrick to this land worked in the hearts of its people. Many thousands, probably tens of thousands, were baptized. Hundreds of churches were planted. Within Patrick's lifetime, 30 to 40, or maybe even more, of Ireland's 150 tribes became substantially Christian. And he thought it was all about green beer. What made Patrick's evangelistic efforts so effective? Or the sovereignty of God, of course. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We've talked about that in this series. Only God can produce converts. Only God can save people. But God desires to use us in his plan of salvation. And certainly he used Patrick. What was it about Patrick's mission that made it so incredibly effective? Well, really, George Hunter's book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, the whole book is an attempt to answer that question. But here's the most important insight. In Hunter's own words, I want you to see it. Here's what he says. The fact that Patrick understood the people and their language, their issues and their ways, serves as the most strategically significant insight that was to drive the wider expansion of Celtic Christianity and stands as perhaps our greatest single learning from this movement. There is no shortcut to understanding the people. When you understand the people, you often know what to say and do and how. When the people know that the Christians understand them, they infer that maybe, just maybe, Christianity's high God understands them too. Put a pin in that thought. We will come back to it. Today we're entering into the very practical second half of this series that we've called Faithful Presence. It's a six-week series on evangelism. How do we share our faith today? In the first three weeks, we established a biblical and theological foundation, and now we're ready for the very practical concerns. The question we're going to ask and hope to answer today is, what is the best way to share the gospel? What is the best way to share the gospel? Now, the question itself assumes that there are many ways to share the gospel. Some people would say, there's no wrong way to share the gospel. It's much like eating a Reese's peanut butter cup. I'm not sure I would go quite that far, but certainly I would say there are many good ways to share the gospel, and therefore there are many good ways that I will not talk about today. This is not a message on the only way to share the gospel. It is, however, a message on what I consider to be the best way to share the gospel based on the biblical testimony and historical examples like that of Patrick. 
So what is this best way? How can our evangelistic efforts be most effective? You and I need four things. I'm going to give them to you here at the very beginning. I'm even going to make them at least somewhat memorable for you. Here they are. The four things we need are first, theological integrity. Second, biblical literacy. Third, cultural sensitivity. And finally, relational equity. We'll take them one at a time. Here we go. First, theological integrity. Now, what I mean by theological integrity is we must have a robust or a complete understanding of the task of evangelism. We must have a solid theology of evangelism in place. Now, I realize we just spent the last three weeks doing just that, developing that solid theology of evangelism, but I come back to it today. I'm belaboring this point because we must understand that if we take that theology of evangelism that we've developed over the last three weeks and we store it on a shelf somewhere and allow it to collect dust while we set out now into the world to share our faith, then we are bound for error. Our methods will be problematic. We must pick up that theology of evangelism and all that that means and carry it with us as we now go to share the gospel with others. So let me just remind you of two key moments in the previous three weeks as we've been developing this theology of evangelism together. Two key moments. The first is when together we defined evangelism. What is evangelism, biblically speaking? We said evangelism is the people of God presenting the message of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that the lost shall come to accept Jesus as their Savior and serve Him as their King in the community of His church. See, as we move now into the methods and all this talk about how we can initiate conversations and build relationships with unbelievers, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you already possess the two most important elements in the evangelistic task, and that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. You already have the two most important things, and so you stand ready for the task. This is what it means to evangelize. That's the first moment I want you to remember. Now, the second moment from the previous three weeks is that moment when we discerned together the difference between what God does in evangelism and conversion and what we do in evangelism. And we put it like this. To keep it simple, we said that we present Christ, God produces converts. Or another way to state it, it's our responsibility to share. It's God's prerogative to save. It's God's prerogative to save. Now, we've got to pick up all of these truths and carry them with us now as we go to share the gospel with our neighbors. Because if we leave them on the shelves to collect dust, here's what happens. If we forget God's role, if we just leave that on the shelf then you and I, we will be combative and coercive in our methods. And if we leave our role on the shelf, we just forget about our role, we won't have any methods. We'll be isolated and silent. 
We won't share the gospel with anyone because we're just going to assume that God's going to handle it all. You see, we have to take this theology with us. We must have, first, theological integrity. That's where it all begins. Second, the second thing you and I need is we need biblical literacy. And of course, here I mean an understanding of the Bible and especially of the gospel, the message we seek to share. Now think of it like this. If you are a believer, then by definition you believe, you know the gospel. You have the message that everyone else needs. So again, you are ready for the task. But maybe you don't feel terribly ready. Maybe you don't feel as prepared as you'd like to feel. I can help with that. It's helpful for us to organize our thoughts in advance of a conversation, right? That's true in anything in life. It's also true as we're sharing the gospel with others. Now, I must tell you, I'm not a proponent. I'm not a proponent of memorizing a lengthy outline or script and then just reciting that or regurgitating that every time we meet an unbeliever. I don't think that's an effective way to do evangelism. I don't think it's what we see in the Bible when people are doing evangelism, and I'll show you that in a moment. But at the same time, it is helpful for us to have some major categories or talking points in our own minds so that as conversations develop organically, And as they begin to shift into spiritual territory, we have some major talking points, some things we'd like to bring up in the discussion. So let me give you a very simple outline of the gospel. There are many of them, but this is probably my favorite one. Four points to it. God, man, Jesus, response. Can't make it more simple than that. This is the gospel concisely. God, man, Jesus, response. God. God created us. He designed us to live in intimate personal fellowship with Him. He designed us to showcase His love to others. He designed us to exercise dominion, reflect His loving rule throughout creation. God designed us that way. And in the very beginning of the biblical story, Relationships, all of them, were peaceful. And human existence was purposeful. God. But the second point, man. Humanity rebelled. We rejected our creator. Our first parents decided to go their own way. And the result, the result of that rebellion was brokenness. Their relationship with God, broken. Their relationship with each other, broken. Their relationship with creation itself, broken. And now we all inherit this broken creation in a sinful and selfish condition. We are sinners by nature and choice. We repeat that initial rebellion again And again and again. Jesus. Focus on his identity and his ministry. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he did everything necessary to fix the brokenness. To set right 
all that went wrong in the beginning. Jesus restores our relationship with God, our creator. He transforms our relationships with each other. And one day he will return to rid this creation of sin and suffering and death. But, response, all that Jesus has accomplished for us, it is not applied to us until we respond to him, until we turn from our sin and trust in him, repentance and faith. So there are the four points, the gospel concisely, God, man, Jesus, and response. But remember, we don't want to work through these in any sort of a robotic way, as if we're telemarketers making our sales pitch. No. In fact, I would say we should have patience in our spiritual conversations, in our gospel presentations. We should listen to people probably more than we speak. And that brings us to the next two things that we need. We need theological integrity. We need gospel or biblical literacy. Third, we need cultural sensitivity. Cultural sensitivity. Here I mean an awareness of our audience. An understanding of the cultural or secular narratives that are informing people today. This is the Patrick principle. This is the St. Paul principle. You remember Paul? We studied his conversion story a few weeks ago, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul shows us that people can change. He also shows us the best way to share the gospel. He becomes Paul, the great missionary who traveled over 15,000 miles in three separate missionary journeys. Most of this is recorded for us in the book of Acts. You can read it for yourself. And as you watch Paul go from city to city, and he shares the gospel countless times, we'll notice that his goal is always the same. The goal is always to present Jesus. But Paul has many ways of getting to Jesus. See, there is only one way to salvation. It's Jesus. Only one way to salvation. It is Jesus Christ. But there are many ways of getting to Jesus. Many ways of getting to Jesus. And what we learn from Paul is that when we know the people in front of us, they will actually dictate the way we get to Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. I want to show you three examples from Paul's missionary travels. Three speeches that he gives in the book of Acts. And I want you to look at what he does here. Each of them is a bit different. In Acts chapter 13, with a Jewish audience, Paul reasons from the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't have to convince these people that there is a God. He doesn't have to convince this audience of the authority of scripture. No, a Jew would have believed these things to the very core of his being. So Paul doesn't have to have those arguments. He has to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, is the long-awaited one, the promised one of God. So he reasons from the scriptures with the Jewish audience. But in the very next chapter, we have a horse of a different color. In Acts 14, with a pagan audience, Paul references creation. He doesn't use the Old Testament scriptures at all. Why not? Because these people don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything about the Old Testament characters. 
but they do know something about creation. And so that's where Paul begins. He starts where his audience is with something they already recognize, nature, creation, the beauty of it, and he takes them from there to the reality of who God is. Now, one more example, and this is probably the most important one, the most pertinent for you and I today, so I want to spend a little more time on it. In Acts 17, the story that I read earlier, with an intellectual audience, Paul reads the cultural narratives. He discerns the stories, the deep stories, and every culture has these, that are influencing the people. And that's where he begins in his efforts to take them toward Jesus. He actually has four moves here. It's brilliant what he does. I want you to see it. He starts by identifying and illustrating the cultural narrative, which we see in verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul comes to the city of Athens, and he has the opportunity to stand before this group of philosophers and intellectuals of the day. And the first thing he does is he reads the cultural narrative. He observes the city that he's just entered, and he realizes very quickly that they are living in a story that is all about discovery. All about discovery. They spend all of their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. They want to learn more and more. They're fascinated by something out there that they don't yet know. Paul picks up on this. He identifies the narrative and then he illustrates it. He states it very clearly using examples from the culture. So read the story in Acts 17 and you'll see Paul going to the philosophers and saying, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. I've observed your architecture. I've observed your artifacts. I even noticed that you have an altar built to the unknown God. What is he doing? He's illustrating that cultural narrative. I see that you are people of discovery. You are searching. So there's his first move. But here's the second one. The second thing he does is he affirms in part that cultural narrative. See, there will be something in every cultural narrative, secular narrative, that we can affirm. Because, as J.R.R. Tolkien once put it, all myths, all myths, steer however shakily toward the true harbor. So there will be something in that cultural narrative that as Christians we can affirm. Paul does that. He does it implicitly here, but by bringing up this reference to the altar of the unknown God, he is in essence saying, hey, you guys are worshipers, so am I. It's good that you're worshipers. In fact, all people are worshipers. He affirms the cultural narrative in part, and then he subverts it. That's his third move. It's brilliant. He subverts or critiques the cultural narrative by saying in verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. So here's how his argument goes. Bring it all together. Men of Athens, I see that you are people of discovery. I see your architecture. I see your artifacts. You even have an altar built to the unknown God, as if you know that you're missing one. You've missed something. I'm here to tell you what that something is. I can tell you who it is. He subverts. And then his final move, he's ready to re-narrate. This opens up 
a whole new story, the true story, the gospel story. These are the four moves that Paul makes when he's standing in front of an intellectual audience. Now, what might this look like today? How might this play out in our conversations today? I'll give you one example very briefly. We were talking about this in our Questioning Christianity class this past Wednesday night. Let's say I have a friend named Tim. I do have a friend named Tim, but this is hypothetical Tim, all right? Hypothetical Tim is a science-minded sort of guy. He thinks that all of the big questions of life, all of the problems of life will be dealt with by scientific inquiry and discovery. I'm aware that that is his cultural narrative. I identify it, and so then I illustrate it. I illustrate it in the conversations I have with him. I bring up some of the books on science that I've seen him read. I bring up some of the previous discussions that he and I have had. And in all of that, I'm showing him that I understand him as a person. I understand his cultural narrative. Then I affirm it in part. I'm ready to say something like, Tim, I see that you're a science-minded guy. I realize that sometimes Christians are portrayed as very antiquated and anti-science, pre-Copernican simpletons. But I want you to know that's an unfair treatment of us. I personally have great respect for science, great appreciation for science, and part of my appreciation for science is in realizing its limitations. Science can tell us a million things about what is, but the one thing it can't do is tell us where the what is came from. And that's why I bring faith alongside science. You see, I've moved there. I've moved from affirming in part now to subverting, critiquing. And now we're ready, if Tim will allow it, if he'll allow the discussion to continue, we're ready to re-narrate, to tell a whole new story, the Christian story, and continue that conversation. You see how it works? Now look, maybe you're hearing all that and you're thinking, that sounds like a lot of steps. That sounds like a complicated process. Can't I just go to my unbelieving friends and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? Can't we just do that? You can, but listen to me. I don't recommend it. And I say that seriously. I really don't recommend it. So we have to come to terms with something that's very, very important. We have to come to terms with the change that has occurred in our world. The best way to put it is like this. For much of the church's missional history, Christians could assume that unbelievers would be present at our events, prepared with a basic knowledge of sin and their need for salvation, and positive about the church. So, the church could simply preach its biblical content. Here's the problem. Increasingly, this is not the case. We all sense that it's not the case. And therefore, our methods cannot be the same. You might recall in the very first week of this series, I referenced the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, I planted Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Today, we have to start even further back 
we have to clear or prepare the field for the planting. We have to do the difficult but necessary work of deconstructing the cultural narratives, the secular answers, and then we're ready to give the biblical answers. Now look, I said this is going to be a talk on the best way to share the gospel. I never said it would be an easy way. This does demand of us the difficult but necessary work of understanding people. It's not just the gospel that we must know. Yes, absolutely yes. But we must also understand people and the narratives that form them. That's what Paul does. We can learn from him. One more thing we need. I'll be very brief here because we're coming back to this one in the last two weeks. We need theological integrity, biblical literacy, cultural sensitivity, and finally, relational equity. If we cannot assume that the average unbeliever will have a positive impression of Christians or Christianity, then it is all the more important that you and I embody the Christian message, embody the love of Jesus in our relationships. We must show unbelievers that we care about them. We must provide a community where they can belong even if they are not ready to believe. Now, if you want a great example of this, I want to recommend again Larry Talton's book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. I gave out some copies of this book in week one of this series. I'll let you in on one of my secrets. Never miss the first week of a series because that's when I give away all the free books. So I gave away eight or so copies of this, of this in week one. But I want to recommend it again. Larry Talton, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. It's a great example of this relational equity piece of evangelism. Talton befriends Hitchens, a leading atheist. And as the story unfolds, we see in Christopher Hitchens this slow but steady warming toward the Christian message. That's relational equity. See, if cultural sensitivity is about learning, learning about people, learning the cultural narratives, relational equity is about loving people, loving them, showing them that we care, even if they never share our beliefs. See, if you ever want someone to come to the point of saying, you know what, you make a good point about Christianity, I see what you believe, I share what you believe. If you ever want them to come to that point, it must begin with them saying, you know what? I enjoy your company. I enjoy your company. That's how it begins. So, enough talk from me. We're going to pray like we've done each week in this series. I want you to spend a few minutes processing. This was a lot today, wasn't it? Process. Reflect. Pray. Pray especially for the unbelievers in your life. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would use you. That he would give you the opportunity to have conversations. And that you would be patient and loving, understanding, and also bold. Pray.